Hello everyone, good evening and welcome back to Ground Waves, meeting now on our new night of Monday nights. And hello from the Laurentian Mountains, my Zion of the West, an hour north of Montreal, where I grew up, where my family has had a home on Lake Manitou in Ivry-sur-le-Lac for 54 years. And no, Ivry-sur-le-Lac does not mean Hebrew on the lake, in spite of there being many Jewish families with cottages here. It actually refers to a French countess whose family name was Ivry, who purchased the land back in 1891 for her son. I want to tell you a family story from these parts. She was three or four years old when it happened, visiting my great-grandmother Rose at her country home along the Richelieu River in St. Hilaire, just east of Montreal, as she did so often. My mother was playing down by the water. The river was swollen, the waters were higher than usual, and in the midst of her fun, my mother fell and landed in the swift swirling current of the Richelieu. And unable to swim or fight the momentum of the river, she flailed her arms and legs and thrashed about to no avail. Out of the corner of his eye, a young teenager working for my great-grandmother in her garden noticed a lot of splashing in the river and thought maybe it was a big fish. He kept trying to get my great-grandmother's attention, but she was focused on her gardening. And when he realized it was my mother in trouble in the water, he yelled to my great-grandmother, who raced to the river, climbed onto the retaining wall, jumped several feet down into the water, and grabbed one of my mother's pigtails, pulling her to safety seconds before the river would have swept her away. If you knew my great-grandmother Rose, you wouldn't be surprised by her heroics. She was an assertive and accomplished businesswoman, the founder of our family business over 100 years ago, with a strong and decisive will who made things happen. Sound familiar? I hope just a little bit. But in that particular feat, my great-grandmother not only saved my mother's life, she saved mine. In that courageous moment, my great-grandmother allowed for the path of my mother's life to continue to unfold, which eventually led to me, with a few other notable accomplishments along the way, like my siblings, I suppose. But enough about them. Yes, I'm the youngest, can you tell? Our family grew up to spend a lot of time around water, Summers, swimming and skiing here on Lake Manitou, and winters, skating and playing hockey and snowshoeing on her frozen face. The natural beauty and wonder of water continues to play a big role in our family's love of nature. But the story of my mother's near drowning hovers in my consciousness, not only because it nearly took her life, but because the power of water to be simultaneously a source of birth and a cause of death, a place of playful relaxation and total dread, a symbol of both renewal and despair makes it a beguiling, if alluring, presence in the world. Like the force of water, our free will can lead us to either be the people we dream of being, to build the lives we deem worth living, or it can lead us to submit to fear and insecurity and unleash pain and suffering on those around us and on ourselves. Free will, like water, can birth or kill. The choice is ours. It's a timely challenge given the world we're living in right now. The Kabbalah understands that true reflection, deep introspection, takes place in the context of relationship. By truly engaging with one another, we can heal not only the relationships that connect us, but by doing so, we come closer to fulfilling our own individual potential and our own truths. And we learn this from water. In Mishlei, we read, Kamaim hapanim lapanim, ken lev ha'adam la'adam. As in water, face answers face so the heart of a person to a person. 
Rav Boonam asked, why does the verse read in water face answers to face and not in a mirror? He explained, just as a person can see their reflection in water only when they bend down close to it. So too, the heart of a person has to lean into the heart of their fellow. And then their heart will see itself within the other person's heart. To be in a relationship with another requires that we look not superficially at one another as we might glance into a mirror as we walk by it, but that we look deeply at one another, into each other's eyes, into each other's hearts, into each other's pain. And when we do so, we're able to behold the depths that we each contain. And we learn also from water that when we lean in for a closer look into each other's hearts, we gain appreciation for the constant flowing and changing that animates a person's soul. We become more sensitive to the changes others go through and more accepting of the changes in the flow of our own lives and our own hearts. But water can be threatening, as we know. And when we reflect deeply, when we gaze into waters and see not just our reflection, but the depths within it and within us, the discoveries can be devastating. A mirror reflects what we put out into the world, but water allows us to see what's lurking in the depths behind that image. And it's not always pretty. When we confront other people's shortcomings and our own, when we lose our footing in the gulfs that separate us, it can be overwhelming. We may feel like we're drowning, just like my mom those many years ago. In one current example, something that I've been thinking about in the last several days, the news of vengeful anti-Semitic rhetoric emerging out of some of the Black Lives Matter movement has become disorienting for many of us. What can we make of our feeling so divided from the very people we're committed to embracing? How can we counter the message that hate conquers hate? How can we surface partnerships of love, love that can contain pain and hurt? The path towards our rebuilding, in this instance and in so many others, is rooted in Torah, in the traditions and stories of our people. It's the Torah that gives voice to the values that shape Jewish vision of purposeful and meaningful living in fellowship with the world around us. And the Torah too is compared to water. Just as water is a necessity for life to survive and thrive, so too Torah is necessary for moral integrity, for soulful courage, and for spiritual vitality. And just as water is cleansing, so too the study of Torah helps us to clarify our struggles, to elucidate our goals, and to build redemptive covenants with others. On our civil rights trip in February, how fortunate we were that we got to go before the world closed down. When we visited the Southern Poverty Law Center, we gathered around the beautiful fountain that sits just outside, emitting echoes of flowing water whose sound carries for blocks. Inscribed on its surface reads the verse from Amos, let justice well up like water, righteousness like an unfailing stream. Just as we have to dig deep into the earth to release her nourishing, replenishing waters, so too do we have to dig deep to release our own. Listen for just a moment to those rushing waters rising from within your souls. Listen. Dig deep, look deep, let those waters emerge and flow today and always. Let them bring forth and not suppress life. 
Let those waters not drown our pain, but rather surface our hope in ourselves and in one another. these never end, the sand and the sea, the rustle of the waters, the lightning of the heavens, and the prayer of human beings. Our guest tonight is Rabbi Dr. Jenny Solomon of Beth Meyer Synagogue in Raleigh, North Carolina. Rabbi Solomon inspires her congregants and students as they navigate their journey with deep compassion. Attuned to people's emotional and psychological needs, Jenny blends her expertise in counseling, ritual experience, Jewish text, and tradition. She is the founding director of Libi Air, Awakened Heart Community Mikvah at Beth Meyer. And as an alumna of several training programs at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, she teaches yoga and Jewish mindfulness meditation. With roots in Dallas, Rabbi Solomon received her undergraduate degree from Brown, was ordained from Hebrew Union College, and completed a doctorate in counseling from the Postgraduate Center for Mental Health in HUC. Jenny spent extensive time studying in Israel, was awarded a Wexner Fellowship, and currently serves as a rabbi at Beth Meyer, where she works and parents her three children in partnership with her husband, Rabbi Eric Solomon, who was a guest of ours a few months ago. Jenny is widely known for her passion and her expertise around mikvah having spearheaded not just the building of a ritual immersion pool for her community, but having created a sacred space for creative and compelling ritual to infuse liminal moments in life with a deep sense of meaning and power, transitions between sickness and health, major life cycle moments, career changes, spiritual milestones, and more. We are so honored and excited to have you with us, Jenny. Welcome to Ground Waves. So honored to be here. Thank you, Dini, and thank you, Dan. Um, with your words of wisdom and with your melodies, Dan, I am totally transported. Um, so it's really a gift to be here with you all. Thank you, Jenny. So obviously you have many talents and much wisdom that distinguish your rabbinate, 
But tonight I'm really interested in your relationship to mikvah and ritual immersion as a core practice of Jewish spirituality. You have the unique distinction of having spearheaded the building of a mikvah, a dream of mine. So I would love if you could open by telling us a little bit about how you became interested in this ritual and maybe a couple of details about the ritual itself for those who may be less familiar. Sure. So mikvah is um, usually translated as ritual immersion in a body of water. It's an ancient ritual, literally thousands of years old. Uh, the first time that we see immersion appear is in the Torah. It's explored most fully in the book of Leviticus, although we don't get so many details. Much of it is elaborated upon by the rabbis much later on, and then sort of a whole body of Jewish law developed around the mikvah. Um, and interestingly, the word mikvah, the first time that root word appears in the Torah is at the very, very beginning of Genesis. And it says that God, that God gathered the waters. So there's this quality um, inherent in mikvah, in my experience, of gathering. And I think about that not only in the sense of the way in which the waters are gathered, literally what makes a mikvah kosher among several things is that there's mayim chayim, there's living water, usually rainwater, that sort of mixes with tap water in this um, very simple but controlled way. Um, but even more so that it's a kind of gathering of myself, a gathering of my, um, our different parts, parts of our lives, moments in time, uh, a gathering of, um, of connection in terms of over the generations, over time and space. So I really love that idea of gathering that is so much at the heart of mikvah. Um, a little bit about my journey with mikvah. I discovered the mikvah really um, many years ago when Eric and I were dating and then eventually were engaged to be married. Uh, I was living in Jerusalem at the time. I was in a particularly sort of orthoprax moment of my life when I was immersing quite deeply in um, traditional Judaism, having come from a uh, a reform home where I didn't know so many of these traditions and I really was just um, totally excited by exploring them all. And so I learned about mikvah actually in a quite traditional context in preparation for our wedding and immersed the first time before our chuppah. Um, but over time, what was so amazing and unanticipated is that the mikvah really became much more about my own healing and my own um, growth, spiritual growth, spiritual awakening than my relationship per se, although it was helpful for that as well. Um, and then when we moved to Raleigh 15 years ago, there was one uh, mikvah in town, um, a mikvah that was under the auspices of the local Orthodox and Chabad center here. And while I was uh, able to use that mikvah for myself, most of our congregants weren't for one reason or another, and it became very clear to me that we would, um, that I dreamed of building a space where everybody could come and um, immerse for their own purposes in a way that felt whole and true and honest to their own uh, experience. So that's a little bit about how, how it all unfolded. Jenny, how do you explain the renewed interest in mikvah that we see 
throughout the liberal and progressive Jewish world. And that's evidenced by the growing number of community mikvahs in the country that are devoted more and more to these kinds of creative um, meanings um, that the mikvah can hold that we're gonna talk about more in, in a moment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. My experience is that once the mikvah, once we peel away um, some of the uh, attachments and some of the layers um, of judgment uh, that kind of have been put on over time, that at, its, at the heart of it is an incredibly intuitive, human, uh, very universal ritual of rebirth, of transformation, of becoming, um, and it's deeply embodied, right? So for over these last many years, so much of Judaism has become kind of a, a neck up experience, very intellectual. And the mikvah invites us to enter into our experience, into prayer, into our own truth in a fully embodied way. And I think that's very healing for people of all of all kinds and all the ways in which they come to the space. So I think that's a little bit, and I'm, of course, I, I want to really mention, I'm so grateful for the people who have come before us, the, the great leaders and pioneers at Mayim Chaim, for example, in Newton, Massachusetts, who charted a path boldly for us, um, other new mikvahot to be born uh, in our own image, but with their same spirit of being an totally non-judgmental place where people can come and the authority for the Jewish ritual lies in them, not in a rabbi, not in an external gaze, not with judgment, but just them coming exactly as they are in the driver's seat of their own experience. So tell us a little bit about some of the ways you've been able to incorporate mikvah in the lives of your students, your congregants, for what kind of life moments or experiences has it become a compelling ritual for people? Sure, so I like to think about it kind of in three buckets. We still have people who come for what we call traditional reasons. There are folks who come for Nida, for that practice of monthly immersions within the context of a sort of traditional heteronormative marriage. Although I will say what's so beautiful is that we have gay women coming, we have, um, we have men and women and non-binary folks coming to prepare for their chuppah. So even that category of what I would call like traditional immersions has been expanded in the most wondrous of ways. Um, and then of course we have conversions that take place. And I love that every rabbi who walks into our doors and we serve sort of a, a fairly large area in North Carolina, they walk in and they can be fully themselves. They don't have to pretend to be anybody else and they can walk their convert through the final steps of the conversion program with their own path, their own style, their own sense of integrity for Jewish tradition. So that's sort of the traditional bucket. Then we have customary immersions. So for hundreds of years, there are different reasons why Jews have traditionally come to the mikvah, not required, but that means, you know, coming before holidays, coming on Shabbat, um, coming in the ninth month of pregnancy. So these are all different customs that have taken hold. 
And then we have the third bucket. And at our mikvah, the third bucket is the biggest one. Um, but those are all the creative reasons. People coming. I had somebody who came last night, actually, who I guided. Um, she has struggled with unemployment, and she's now uh, in a new job that feels good and whole and like the right path for her. And interestingly, um, you know, she shared with me, it's such a tender moment as somebody prepares to immerse. She was sort of sorting through, we have a beautiful collection of ritual ceremonies that are laminated so you can take them with you into the water. People do not have to use them, but um, many people choose to have them, these ceremonies, just to kind of ground and guide their experience. And she was looking through which ceremony she wanted to take. And there was a ceremony for, um, having after having had an abortion and she said you know i had an abortion four years ago and i've never told anybody in my whole life hmm. and it was this week four years ago oh, and wow. she said, could i take this ceremony too so you know we hold these experiences in our bodies some of them speakable some of them unspeakable and um i'm just continually amazed people find themselves to the mikvah. They think sometimes they're coming for one reason and they find that there, there are many more. So I love what you said at the beginning, Dini, about you know the way in which water is both destructive and life-giving. And it is this and this and this and this. And um, it's such a beautiful expression of the sort of non-dualistic nature um, of our indigenous spirituality, that it need not be one or the other, it's all of it. And uh, people do come for all those reasons and, and the mikvah holds their happy tears and their incredibly um, traumatized and devastated tears and they sort of all commingle. Describe something that's, that's so beautiful, so inviting, Jenny, so, so warm and powerful. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what some of the obstacles might be that that um, may keep some people away from the mikvah, especially maybe liberal Jews who associate the mikvah with more orthodox elements, uh, sort of misunderstandings about the the tainting of women who are menstruating, the misunderstandings around impurity as uncleanness. Um, maybe even some of the intimacy and the exposure of the mikvah? What, what, what keeps people away and how have you been able to help people overcome those sources of resistance? And how have people um, sort of responded to it? Mm. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you bringing those things up. They are real. Um, and my experience has been that um, when people enter into the space, and I do a lot of education as much as I can, and I begin to use a different language to talk about the experience of mikvah and kind of peel away some of those layers of interpretation, um, people soften and they, they get it and they feel what it is to be in that space and to be reminded also that um, we do not require that a mikvah guide be in the room while you're immersing. And all of a sudden, people feel um, liberated <laughs> and released. Um, I'll never forget, um, there's an Israeli woman living in the Triangle area. We get a bunch of 
um, Israelis that come through for postdocs and various things at Duke and UNC. And there was an Israeli woman who was coming for a couple of years um, while she was positioned at Duke. And it was the first time that she had ever immersed without uh, a mikvah lady in there with her. And she came out of the immersion room, just tears streaming down her face. I was so concerned that, I don't know, something else was going on. And she said it was such a, just a redemptive experience for her. So, um, you know, and I think a lot of people, and this is not a gender thing, but I think a lot of people are disassociated from their body, disconnected from their bodies, embarrassed by their bodies. And so being alone with their own bodies. So um, I really try to, in, in my teaching, just remind people that our bodies are, um, they're beautiful and they're holy exactly as they are. And that is what mikvah is about is, um, coming back into contact with that. Uh, and it certainly has been that, a journey toward that for me as well. So it comes from a very personal um, experience as well that I'm always happy to share with people. That's so beautiful. Um, I imagine also very, very um, affirming for people um, because, you know, I think a lot of people have a lot, have trepidation around stepping into a space like that. Yeah. Um, you know, my experience with mikvah has mostly been in natural bodies of water and I have found, you know, I, I find the ritual to be overwhelmingly beautiful and healing. Um, but you know, I live in the New York area that's a little limiting, right? And an institutional mikvah can throw up all, you know, other kinds of, of barriers, emotional, psychological, and, and social. So the, what you describe, um, I can't wait to visit it. I can't wait to have you. <laughs> Jenny, is a ritual of liminality that helps us transition from one state to the next. Do you think mikvah can be helpful during this particular time of crisis, physical crisis, social crisis, medical crisis, um, as we tentatively try to take steps beyond it? And of course, we're experiencing all of the threats of, of what that might mean. But in these moments of liminality, does mikvah have something to offer us? Um, I love that question. So just to make sure everybody knows this idea of liminality, which I think is so much a part of mikvah, is this understanding that we are sort of crossing through a threshold. We are have sort of one foot um, positioned. You can imagine one foot under the door frame in one room and one foot into the next moving in between time and space. And water, of course, is symbolic of that dynamic transformation and can kind of hold us in all of those in-between moments. Um, sometimes when I'm teaching about liminality, I like to use the example of uh, a woman coming in the ninth month of pregnancy as um, she anticipates transitioning, you know, between not quite um, one person and then into two people, right? It encapsulates it so beautiful beautifully. Um, so in thinking about this time, you know, for me, even just going month to month, it's such an, um, it's such an anchoring way to mark time. Uh, just as you described that beautiful Hasidic um, commentary on the way in which we look into water and we have to kind of lean in. The mikvah, um, you know, I go when I go, which is sort of a specified date uh, and time. 
But whenever I go, I have this moment to lean in and to begin to just notice more about what I'm learning, what I need to let go of, um, what I want to take with me, where I'm becoming, where I'm stuck. You know, all those pieces become uh, places to explore and to really feel in my body um, when I immerse. So in that sense, you know, we can feel like in this pandemic time that um, it's like we do what we do and then we go to bed and then we wake up and do what we do again. There's this way in which time is kind of undifferentiated. And so mikvah to me is, among other things, a way of differentiating time, of noticing what was and now what is and please God what what might come. Maybe it's a time to to try to encourage people to incorporate mikvah the way many do uh, weekly before Shabbat yeah. um, as a way of harnessing those beautiful redemptive healing powers um, uh, on a weekly basis to help us mark this time. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful concept. Yeah. Yeah. So Jenny, Sha'ar is a community um, where we care a lot about sustainability um, of our own souls, um, spiritual sustainability, societal sustainability, and of course, environmental sustainability. One of the things that I've always been so moved by in the traditions around mikvah is the requirement for maim chayim, living water, which in institutional settings, as of course you know, in, in, but in, in, in uh, service of explaining it to, to those who are gathered with us, it's not that the entire pool of water has to be filled with naturally falling um, water, but there has to be um, a blending of some natural water with water that comes from the tap. And in the, in the rabbinic literature, the image of this mingling of waters uses the, 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 the image of the waters kissing, the maim chayim, the, the living waters coming and literally kissing um, the waters that have been previously gathered. Such a beautiful image, the intimacy, the, the emotion, and the depth. But given this requirement of mayim chayim, of living natural waters, I wonder if you have any thoughts about how mikvah might play a role in raising spiritual consciousness around climate change. Is there a relationship between mikvah and the urgency of our planetary crisis? I imagine there are so many ways to to answer that question, and I, I don't think anyone has ever asked it of me before. Um, but for me, in the same way that mikvah invites an honoring of the body at its most elemental level, right? We are actually, I don't remember the percentage, but I think our bodies are like mostly water. Um, there's a way in which um, when I immerse, I am also reminded of these most fundamental building blocks of life that in the same way that artifice and makeup and jewelry and all of that stuff is stripped away, um, there is a kind of encounter with the most elemental sources and sustenance of our being. And I just always walk away. There's such a simplicity to it, right? I mean, it's a body and it's water. It's very, very simple. Um, and yet I always walk away with just a deepened appreciation of this planet that continues to hold and nurture me. 
and us and a desire to um, to protect it out of that sense of gratitude. Uh, there's a beautiful tradition that, of course, we know scientifically all the water that ever was is all the water that we have in this world and that the water of the mikvah flows from Eden. Um, and on the one hand, it's quite imaginative that sort of the Garden of Eden water would magically appear in our mikvah in Raleigh, North Carolina. But in fact, it's not so much a stretch of imagination. It's actually the truth. And the truth is, is that we are connected. My little corner of North Carolina is connected to the waters of Eden and it's connected to the waters that sustain all human life. And so once again, there's that sense of we are all gathered together on this planet um, and we have to guard and protect it and each other. That's a beautiful answer. Um, I love the imagery you keep coming back to, the gathering and, uh, and, and a beautiful way to, to bring to, uh, to conclusion, this short period of time that we've had with you, Jenny, but one that you have filled with so much wisdom and so much passion. And I hope that we will gather again. In fact, I know that we'll gather again because um, we're starting to talk in the community about a very special pre-High Holy Day uh, ritual immersion workshop that Samara Stern is um, creating together uh, with me and others. And given the limitations of the world right now, um, Jenny, you have generously offered to guide us in developing an adapted ritual of immersion that um, our community members can, um, can uh, enjoy as part of their preparations for Rosh Hashanah within the privacy of their own homes. So um, I want to tell everyone to keep a lookout for more information for this workshop, which we're hoping to offer on Sunday, August 23rd. And I want to thank Jenny for offering to extend her wisdom and her creativity and her passion um, into helping us devise that as well. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. And uh, I can't wait to, to learn more, to visit. And I hope that I'll have the opportunity to immerse in the beautiful waters that you've created. Amen. And maybe one day in your mikvah in New Jersey. <laughs> Amen. You hear that, everybody? <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Jenny. So Done.
And that was an awesome rendition of Wade in the Water. That was fantastic. Thank you. The Jewish tradition teaches us that water is also actually the ultimate symbol of joy. The message comes from a statement in the Mishnah about a ceremony that's called Simchat Beit HaShoeva, a ceremony that used to place, take place on Sukkot in the ancient temple in Jerusalem, it involved these wild processions with huge torches and water hauled in from in these fancy golden vessels. Last of the shofars, some music, jubilant dancing, handstands, juggling by the by all these leading sages. I have to go to class for that. And finally, this elaborate ritual of pouring water on the altar. It was such a huge celebration that the Mishnah declared. Whoever has not observed Simchat Beit HaShoeva has never in their life seen true joy. Now, far from being melodramatic, I think the mission is actually touching on something quite profound, something that I think we're all hoping to access, and maybe especially today. Rav Aaron Soloveitchik explains why water was chosen for this particular rite. It might've made more sense to use wine. Wine we know is a substance that brings joy and gladness or maybe fine oil, one of the ingredients used in the offerings made on the altar. Why use something so uninteresting, so simple, so ordinary as water to honor the altar? That's true, wine is more celebratory, Rav Aaron admits, but wine is a substance that artificially stimulates joy within us. The happiness that it causes is external to us. So oil, definitely more special, a highly prized commodity in the ancient world. Its value alone would have produced excitement. But again, that source of excitement is external to us. Water, by contrast, is neither special nor expensive. Doesn't make us feel happy or giddy. 
Water is common, mundane, accessible for most, though not for too many. But appreciating its presence in our life, in spite of its, in spite of its unremarkable, most ordinary quality, represents an inner authentic expression of joy, Ravaron teaches. The cultivating within ourselves the ability to appreciate and to celebrate the most basic building block of our lives, an analogy to our families, our friends, communities, work, food, nature, our neighborhoods, in spite of their everyday presence in our lives, that would represent accessing a dramatic inner joy because those are the things that we most often take for granted. We know we're gonna see certain people every day drive the same roads or take the same subways, eat the meals that we prepare or go to the restaurants that we used to, are used to going to or go to the places of work that we're used to. But to approach these basic mundane things with excitement and with enthusiasm, that's a whole different story. And it's one that we're actually learning today as we continue to shelter, continue to retreat from the world as we know it in the face of the risks of COVID-19. We usually reserve our celebrations in life for moments and for people who are out of the ordinary. But if we can't experience joy in the everyday, in the mundane, in that which holds our lives in their very ordinariness, well then, warns the Mishnah, we don't have a clue as to what real happens. Accessing that level of joy does more than enrich our own lives. By learning to be happy, truly happy, we free ourselves to live in peace with those around us. How much of the pain we cause others or they cause us comes from personal unhappiness, insecurity, emptiness, that too many of us feel and that we then use to punish others with. Learning to feel joy is a crucial life skill, a real and serious part of investing in ourselves and in our relationships. Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, the prolific Talmudist and mystic of our own time, reminds us that joy is not the opposite of sadness. Joy is actually what we feel when we experience our own truth, the unmitigated, honest acceptance and affirmation of all that fills our lives and our potential to live them with dignity, with possibility, and with hope. And it all comes from water. When I was interviewing for a rabbinical school at JTS 33 years ago, the interviews took place in what was called the green room, a room with wall-to-wall -wall shaggy lime green carpet with a glass table around which the interview committee sat with the candidate sitting at the head. Now, word got out my year that the committee each applicant the same opening question after offering them a glass of water. What blessing, what bracha is made over water? Is there a bracha made over such an ordinary substance? Now, the glass table made it impossible to cover up your nervous hand wringing, wondering if this was a trick question. It was not. A blessing is indeed made over water. The blessing is, Baruch Blessed are you, source of life by whose word everything comes to be. Water is the building block of all forms of life. This blessing is the foundation of all blessings. If you forget the right blessing to say for a particular food you're eating, this blessing will always do. Everything edible under the sun can be blessed by that bracha. In the same way, every moment of life contains within it seeds of blessing. Our accomplishments and our failures our strengths and our weaknesses, our merits and our sins, our anger and our happiness, our fear and our courage. 
It is we who have the power to make something of those moments and to bring their blessings to life. So what do we make of the moment in which we find ourselves now as we're tentatively stepping back into life while the pandemic threatens to resurge? What is it that we make of this moment now in the midst of a social uprising in the name of justice and love that contains voices of hate? What do we make of this moment now during the week in which a fast day will be commemorated on Thursday, Shiva Asar Batamuz, mourning the breach of the walls of ancient Jerusalem, while Jerusalem today threatens to breach its own promise to be a land of peace and a home filled with justice. Can we dive into the chaos and rise to the occasion? Can we own our mistakes and respectfully point out those that belong to others? Can we ask forgiveness from one another and do better next time? Can we express our disappointment and seek productive partnerships and recommit to our goals? 33 years ago, I gripped my glass of water and recited the blessing for all to hear. Shehakol Nihia Bidvaro. His word brings everything into being. This is our mandate, our blessing and our burden, to take what can be dangerous like water and to make it life-giving like water. Listen for it. Dig for it. Immerse in it and then come out and dry off and get back to the work of building our world of love.
Springsteen. Our prayer for healing tonight is inspired by a modern Tahina prayer. Tahinas are a unique collection of women's prayers written between 17th and the 19th centuries. This is a modern Tahina that was composed for going to the mikvah, which I've adapted in light of our reflections tonight. God of Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, and of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. We're here before you as countless generations of Jewish people have gathered contemplating the holiness of Mayim Chaim, living waters. Bless us, Holy One, in body and in spirit. Keep us and those we love healthy, safe, and strong. Protect and nurture us. Bind us together in love. Grant us lives without strain or struggle. Grant us fulfillment and sustenance from our livelihoods. Rahamana, compassionate one, lead us in the path of righteousness and help us use our abilities to repair this broken world. Help us ease and gladden the lives of those we cherish us the vision to recognize our unique capacities to make the world a better place and the courage and the stamina to do so. Source of life and of love, you created the world from a womb of water and you made us in your image pure and holy. Thank you for our miraculous bodies which move to rhythms as do the sun and moon, the seasons, Shabbat and the holy days bless you as we ask for your blessing upon us and those we love. As we think of the living mikvah waters, we are ever more aware of our dependence upon your sacred creation, upon the earth, her oceans and rivers, lakes and seas. We know that our lives are sustained by the web of life of which we are a part. May we be shown kindness and may we show kindness. Help us purify our lives from pain and sorrow, from negativity, from our own faults and inadequacies. As the living waters of the mikvah might embrace us, Makor HaChayim, source of life. May we embrace your presence in and around us at all times, in all spaces, in all faces. And we say amen.
Before we conclude, I thank, again, Rabbi Dr. Jenny Solomon, whose wisdom, whose creativity, whose warmth inspired us tonight, I hope, to take the plunge. So, again, look out for more information about our mikvah immersion ritual workshop on August 23rd. I really hope you'll join us. Next week on Ground Waves, we will have a guest who will speak with us about the issue of annexation and how it is that we are to understand the concerns and the consequences that are uh, animating the Middle East, the Jewish world, the Palestinian world. On Wednesday night of this week, I want to invite you to join me for jurisprudence. Our topic will be halakha and racism. There'll be a reading that will be shared uh, tomorrow, and that'll um, go live Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m. Don, thank you as always for your incredibly beautiful music and your inspired choices that you bring to us each and every week, how you manage to align the theme of the pieces you play with what we're talking about. It just, it expands the spirit of Torah um, throughout Ground Waves and I'm so grateful to you. We're gonna close as we begin. of everyone. Stay safe, stay healthy. My love to you all.